0: All right, we're going to be in Genesis 26, continuing to learn from these patriarchs, Abraham, massive figure in the Bible. Isaac gets a sliver, and then Jacob gets a massive amount in the Bible. So we just get a little teeny part of Isaac's life, but to me, this is one of the brilliant lessons in chapter 26 that we can get from Isaac. So I'll read a couple of verses. To give you the flow of this, and then we'll talk. Chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerir, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Then skip down to verse 22. And he, this is Isaac, moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now Yahweh has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Jesus, we give you thanks for the community that you have given to us in the church. We give you thanks for salvation that's been ensured to us because of the cross. We give you thanks for your spirit that's been deposited into each believer that produces fruit, love, and joy, and peace. We thank you for the future kingdom that's coming, that we belong to as joint heirs with you. We thank you for the the mission of today and this week and this month in Grants Pass and Josephine County in Southern Oregon. We thank you for the good works that you prepared in advance for us to walk in. We ask as we study this morning that we would be better equipped to walk out the great partnership we've been given from you. So help us, guide us. We ask this in your name, amen. Amen. What you see with a lot of missing verses is this chapter begins with the famine and ends with fruitfulness. Isn't that life? Isn't life full of like famines where it's hard and difficult and then you get through those and then you enter into, ah, good times but there are famines, no doubt about it. Sometimes we get into famines and difficulty because of dumb decisions that we've made. But that's not Isaac. Isaac here is in a famine because there's no rain. This is outside of his control. Sometimes life happens and it's hard. It's just difficult. Nothing we've done, things that are way outside of our control. Do you know that there's a lot that you and I cannot control the smoke in our valley, the weather, lots of political stuff, the economy. There are tons of things that we cannot control. But I think at times we like to believe we're in control. One of the biggest lessons for me, it was such a simple lesson. I actually had to journal it down was when God really revealed to me, Matt, you don't control much at all. And this is how it happened. And I shared this on a Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. But at that time, it was like five or six years ago, I had a dog named Chloe, golden retriever. And we had this cat. So Chloe, my golden retriever, very obedient. Like even if she was in trouble, I'd be like, Chloe, you come here right now. And she'd put her tail between her legs and she would like slink up to me. Yes, master. Okay, master. Right? Just absolute obedience. I had complete control over that animal. Well, this morning, five, or six years ago, I come out. It's early. It's early. And I needed to put a flea collar on the cat. So I come out and immediately Chloe's right next to me. Hi, master. What are we doing? What are we doing? And just sits down next to me. I see the cat. It was like maybe 30 feet away from me in the yard. I'm like, here, kitty, 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 And the cat just goes back to licking itself. Just no obedience at all. So I stop and I call again. Come here, kitty, 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 here, kitty, kitty. And she doesn't even look this time. Just, nah, you're not putting that on me. And my dog, Chloe, is like getting nervous. It's like, cat, master is calling, come. Oh no, what's going to happen? The world's going to end, right? Like just freaking out because the cat's disobeying me. It was so awesome. (laughs) I had to journal that morning. I'm just like, I can't even control a cat. If you want to think you're in control of life, go try to control a cat. Go try to give a cat a bath and you'll find out how much control you have, right? We don't control much, and sometimes life just happens to us, and there's famines, and there's difficulties. You change jobs, maybe because you didn't want to, and you don't fit in at the new job. Your kids end up doing things that you wish they had not done. Your kids tell you they don't believe in Jesus anymore. Your kid starts going with the wrong person, boy or girl. Just, oh, difficulty. Your kid gets pregnant out of wedlock. Oh, Difficulty, a lot of things that are outside of our control. Death in the family, a disease. There's famines that just hit us out of our control, kind of like Isaac right here. So Isaac goes from really fruitful times to really famine time and then back to a fruitful time. And I think he gives us some lessons that help us walk through famines back to fruitfulness and the Bible says this, it's the New Testament. It says all these stories in the Old Testament, and you can be like, well, why are they all there? It says they're actually given as examples for you and me to learn from, that the physical lives of the patriarchs actually are showing us a spiritual life that you and I can walk out. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So I think in Isaac, we learn a lesson. If you're in trouble, if you're in famines, if you're in a desert time, a dry time, Isaac, I think, gives us some lessons on how you and I can walk through those famines into our Rehobos, where there's fruitfulness and room again, all right? So let's follow this a little bit. Look at verse two. Look what God immediately says to Isaac. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you don't go to Egypt, stay in the promised land stay in the land that I've promised to you so what does he do look at verse six so Isaac settled in Gerar if you had a map and you looked at the promised land goes from way up in the north all the way down to the south and the most southern part of The land right next to Egypt has a little town called Gerar, right? So technically he is still in the promised land, but he is as close to Egypt as he could possibly get. It would be like God telling you or me, don't move to Portland and you move to Beaverton. I'm not in Portland. I'm in Beaverton, right? That's essentially what Isaac does. He gets as close as possible to Egypt without actually getting into Egypt. He follows his instinct. It's a famine, it's difficulty, it's bad. I'm going to go to the border as far as I can, as close as I can get to Egypt. I'm going to go there. I think that's the believer's natural tendency. When hard things happen, when bad things happen, when you go through famines, I think sometimes the instinct of the believer is actually to push out of the promised land of believers and community and the way that we're supposed to be. And we actually move away and slowly, but slowly we get as far away from those things as possible. Let me try to prove it. I'll prove it this way. So let's say you make a poor decision. You're a motorcycle rider. You decide you're going to jump this big set of doubles. And so maybe not the best decision in the world. And you try to jump that big set of doubles and you case it on the second double and you end up breaking your leg. Not a good decision. You break your leg. Where do you go? The hospital, right? You go to the emergency room. Because the hospital is the place for people with broken legs. That's where you go, right? And, and you'll tell, yeah, I shouldn't have made that decision. Yeah, I was stupid, whatever. I still have to go to the hospital and get my leg fixed. Okay? All right. Let's bring that to a spiritual level. Let's say you make a poor decision. And you or maybe your kids end up in the police section of the Daily Courier on Saturday. Where do you go on Sunday. Right? Where are you going? Are you pushing away to border town? Cause you're like, Oh, I don't want, man, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go there because I think in, 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 people's mind, they don't believe church is the place for broken people. They think church is the place for perfect people. And people come here and they put on their good clothes and their perfect clothes and they smile and say, everything's fine. And it's awesome. And I don't have anything wrong with me. And so church becomes a place for perfect people. And then no one wants to go to the church if they're not perfect, so then they go to the border town instead. What's sad to me is I think a lot of people feel more comfortable in their brokenness at a bar than they do with believers at church. And it's wrong. Because church is a place where broken people go to meet their great physician. That's what church is. And we have to keep repeating to ourselves over and over and over it's okay to not be okay here. That, that's, okay. that's okay. This is the emergency room. Come here. If you're broken, come here. But there's this weird thing that happens where we begin to believe, you know, oh, it's where perfect people are. And I can do it. I can start being with, with my own kind of way of presenting myself that I'm perfect. And so I have to be very careful and very I'm good at admitting my failures and repenting in front of you in prayer and doing those things. Demonstrating, you know what? I'm broken too. And I'm coming here to meet my great physician, Jesus, who heals me, that I need to go to the hospital. And I can do it also with kind of judging the way people kind of dress or the way they look. Like, okay, that dude's really broken. Look how he's dressed. Hospitals don't do that, do they? Do hospitals care how you're dressed? No, what do they do? They make everybody wear those goofy gowns right? Just to make sure that there's no problem. I think church, we should hand out goofy gowns like that. Like you got to change, man. Everyone's wearing these goofy gowns. So no one can be like, you look terrible. It's like, I look terrible too. Oh my goodness. Don't look at me. Hold on. Where do I, I can't hide anywhere. The back of this thing's open, right? And it, then I think it begins to show people, listen, it's okay not to be okay. We're all in goofy gowns, we're all broken, and we're all coming to the same great position. Now that's what we need to do. We have to go against that instinct, instantly. Isaac instinct is, I gotta get out of here in this famine. The body of believers is supposed to be a place that actually changes that instinct where it draws people in. This is where I need it. This is the emergency room. I need to go right there, right now, because that's where I'm gonna find help, all right? So if we don't do that, we don't go to Egypt, come here to the promised land of believers. But then notice what he then does. Verse 17, there's some things that happen, but verse 17 says this, Still, still a famine, still no rain. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. He's starting to move actually. Wednesday we'll see. He actually is moving step by step by step back to where God wants him through difficulty and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped up with earth after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of that well, Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that. So he called its name Sitnah, and he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now Yahweh has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Notice Isaac's desperation what does Isaac do here? He digs wells, right? Because when you're in a famine and in the desert, what's the one thing you need? Water. Deserts and desperation are super good at getting believers to what really matters. He was not remodeling his tent. He was not fixing up his six horsepower chariot. He was digging wells because without water, he was going to die. Deserts remind you and me what matter. They're super good at that. If we don't get water here, I'm dead. My wife's dead. My kids are dead. All my animals are dead. Deserts are super good at that. But we have a culture today in America that's equally as good at distracting us in the desert. It gives us all these distractions that then we forget what really matters, right? We just entered into football season. What a glorious distraction football is, isn't it? Right? You can get consumed with football, not just on Saturday and Sunday. You can get consumed with it all week long because now they have like Thursday games and Friday games. But also you can read about like, how's the team doing this week? Who's injured? Like it can just become your life. Totally distracted that you're dying and dehydrated from thirst. Doesn't matter. Oh, football. Glorious distraction. And then you watch a football game and they put these ads on. I don't remember these ads when I was a kid. It's the drug ad ads. Did they have those when we were little? I don't think they could do it. I think there must have been some kind of law passed. You can advertise drugs to football fans because they'll buy them. And I love how they present the drugs. It's so awesome. Are you feeling tired? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Ask your doctor if Zippy might be good for you. It is good for me. Give me Zippy. Right? Like, who isn't tired? It's so like, it's so ridiculous. Are you worried? I'm worried right now my football team won't win one game. I'm worried. Ask your I don't need to, give me it, right? It's just so awesome. And instead of prioritizing what matters, we're just totally distracted. I can go on and on and on. Our culture has perfected distracting you and me in the desert. Now, I am not anti-medication, but I am pro-meditation. That what the desert's supposed to do to us has caused us to take a a step back and to reorder and to remind ourselves what actually matters and what is important. That's what I'm pro, I'm pro meditation. So let me read for you this incredible psalmist who he was in a desert, he was in a famine and look what he writes. It's Psalm 63. It might be one that you can write down as a key one. Listen to Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. That's an underliner. We all have these ideas what life will be. If I could just get this, that would be life. If I could just get this job, this reputation, this many followers, that girl, that guy, this amount of money, that house. If I could just get a dis... uh, uh, Vacation in Disneyland, that would be life. If I could just finally move to Merlin, that would be life. Whatever we would say is life. The psalmist found, no, his said is better than that. See, the deserts remind us of what actually matters. It's your said. So my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. That's what a desert's good at. Jesus put it like this. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's a promise. And just last Sunday, I talked to a guy. And he's been through a famine, a desert, not of his own choosing, when brought on him. And he said this, Matt, I wouldn't trade what has happened to me for that megabucks lottery. Because before this, I knew about Jesus, but now I know Jesus. I know his said, And that's what he said. That's what a desert's supposed to be. That's what's supposed to ha- happen to us. Okay? Don't squander your desert. Get desperate. Prioritize. Get rid of des- distractions, okay? He's desperate because one thing matters and it's water. Then notice number 2, where he digs in. It's verse 18, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. I love that. Isaac knows there's water here because I watched my dad dig here in this spot and he found water. and I'm going right back there. Dads, are you demonstrating to your kids how to dig in in famine? Dig in in difficulty? Because they're going to... Abraham had a famine. Verse one says this, this is not the famine of Abraham. Abraham had his own famine, had to go through and dig. And Isaac watched his dad and his famine and does the same thing as his dad. There's water there. That's how I dig in. Dads, are you demonstrating that for your kids? Because they're going to go through the same famines we are. Death, health, things out of our control. How do we deal with those things? Are we giving them locations? Notice it's not the wells that Sarah, his mom, had dug. It's dad. Because there's something unique about a dad and a dad's pursuit of Jesus that matters. I have a study from Switzerland. Switzerland is moving away from Jesus, been moving away for quite some time. So they had a study to try to figure out what makes a child stay with the faith of Jesus? What, what, what keeps a kid in Christianity? And here's what they found. If a mom was 100% into church and a dad wanted nothing to do with church, 3% of the kids continued in the faith. One in 30. Bad statistic. But if a dad was 100% into church, dad's into it 100%. Mom wants nothing to do with church. 44% of the kids continue in the faith. Almost half. Because dads, there's something. There's something about us and where we dig and our priorities that begin to transfer over to our children. It's dads. Are you digging? So your kids in future years, when they go to the same famine, can find water. I hope so. I think it's even more than that though. I think personally, we should all have locations. I journal and here's the reason why, because I know there's going to be valleys and mountains, famine and feasting, And when I'm in the famine, I want to look back when times were really good and read what was I doing? How was I serving? What was my attitude? What was I like? Because maybe I need to get back to those things. Maybe I've drifted. There's a slow, subtle drift that happens to the believer. And maybe I need to tighten things up and get back to what I was doing. And so I journal locations. This is what I was doing. This is what I was about. This is the things that I did. That location. I think we need to know church history. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God has always been working really the same way throughout all of church history. And we are woefully ignorant of church history. Man, Jeremiah says this, it's Jeremiah six sixteen. It's actually God speaking. He says this, ask for the old paths, the good old ways, and I'll give them to you again. I think we've left some good old ways as a church, as a community. And we need to know, man, what were the old paths? What did the church prioritize? What did they do? Because now we think it's Facebook or we think it's Instagram or we think it's a social media or a new app or we think it's all these other methods. Nothing's wrong with those things. But I think the old paths tell us this. this, God's word works. Prayer gets you answers. Sometimes not the answer you want. That gets you an answer, right? God's Spirit continues to produce fruit. God's kingdom is still working and brilliant and amazing. That the gospel is the power of God into salvation, that it's the power. These things never change. Those are locations that the church has always come back to. Revival happens when those things happen. So we need to know church history and go back to them. We need locations, right? We need to know like what the Bible really emphasizes. You know how many times the Bible says, be thankful, give thanks, give thanks unto the Lord. You know how many times it says that? I don't know either, but it's a lot. <laughs> and if the Bible's repeating something like that. maybe we should say that's a good location. We should dig in right there. School starting. maybe at breakfast for the next season, maybe you should go around your table, just take an extra five minutes and begin your kids' life with Thanksgiving because every science study, anything, the Bible, all of it says this. If you have an attitude of gratitude, it transforms your perspective on that day. So maybe just starting your day, hey, let's give thanks for all that God has given to us. It's a way to just dig in, have a lifestyle of gratitude. So here's a location. Dad gave him a location. Then lastly, there's perspiration, right? He digs a well, The Philistines come, fight over it, moves, digs another well. Philistines come, fight over it, moves along, digs another well. That's his Ramboth. And there was, from his dad's time to his time, there was something, an enemy, that had taken this place of water and refreshment and they'd actually put a bunch of dirt in it, filled it up with earth. There's water there, but the only way to get to that water is to dig in. The world had got into the well and now they could not get to the water that they needed. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus puts it like this. It's Matthew 13, 22. He says, a farmer planted a really good seed and the seed took root and it began to grow up and it was beautiful and it was gonna become fruitful. But then all of a sudden around this one seed grew up these thorns and these thistles. And they grew up and they stole the water and they stole the sunlight and that seed withered. And Jesus says, those thorns and thistles that grew around that seed, they are the cares of this world. That that stuff, the cares, the dirt of this world can choke out the seed. The dirt of this world can get in the well of the water that God has for us. We have to be so careful because it's subtle. As As a church I need to be careful of the methods of this world that, that are always like being presented to me. Here's how you do church. You got to market yourself. You got to market your name. You got to market yourself. I don't know about that. I don't see that in church history. So maybe you notice we changed this backdrop. The old backdrop was black. It was awesome. said Edgewater on it, but that's all it said. And someone said, why, why did we change the backdrop? Why are we advertising the name of Edgewater? And you know what? They were right. So we took down the, that other backdrop. And we put this one up because ultimately, Edgewater is not going to save you. Ultimately, my name is not going to save you. Ultimately, the only name that we should be spouting out for salvation is the name of Jesus. And if we start getting into these worldly methods, look out. It's just a creep. The dirt gets in. So I got to be careful. I got to be careful in my own life. Lord, is there something in the way of the water that you want to be given to me? The Rehoboth, the room for me, is there something in the way? has the world got in to the well? And I got to constantly, almost vigilantly be digging out the junk. Do I make excuses? Am I just like the world? Do I react like everyone else does? Or am I taking the Sermon on the Mount to heart where Jesus says, you be different. Even the Gentiles are good to their friends, but you love your enemies. You pray for those that despitefully use you. Like, that's a radically different way of living. A- am I doing that? Or has the world got in? And I'm saying it's a dog-eat-dog world. That'll never work. I can't do those things. Am I digging into God's word? Or has the world got in? Oh, I can't really do that right now. I'm binging on Netflix. There's always something, right? I should pray about that. You know what? But Google has some great answers on that same problem. The world has this incredible way of getting in. And then we end up drinking glasses of dirt, trying to convince ourselves that it's good and healthy. This takes perspiration, right? He has to dig and there's contention. He has to dig and there's strife and he has to dig. And finally there's room. Here's what I found. Whatever I make like, okay, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray in the morning. Guess what happens the morning I decide to read my Bible and pray? I sit down. I got extra time. What's going to happen right then and there? Strife and contention, right? I'll read for a little while, my mind will wander. Then I'll say, "Okay, I'm going to pray." And the moment I begin to pray, guess what happens? It's like man, dirt thrown in my brain. Hey, remember Bill? Yeah, Bill. Man, I haven't thought about him forever. He owes me twenty bucks. <laughs> oh man, what's his number? I better Google that. White Pages, Bill Belford. What's your, you know? I'm calling you. Get my money back. It's amazing, right? If I was doing anything else, I would have never thought about Bill. But the moment I actually try to dig in, strife and contention. They're coming at me because this thing is spiritual. And we have to be vigilant. So what I have now is I have a piece of paper. When I want to read and pray, I have a piece of paper. And the moment those things come, instead of letting my mind spin on them, I write it down and say, I'll get to that later. Because I know it's going to be some digging in for me to get to the water that God has for me. I know that's the way it's going to be. So I wanna get rid of the distractions as quickly as possible. Are we digging in? That's what Isaac had to do. He had to get through strife, through contention to his Rehoboth. And the Bible promises this. It's Jeremiah 29. If you'll seek me, you'll find me when you seek with your whole heart. When you seek me, you'll find me if you seek through contention and strife with your whole heart. It's James four, verse eight, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. It's a promise. It's Jesus saying, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'm the living water, come to me. And I don't do this very often, but I prayed about this and I thought about it, wrote down Bill Billford's name when I'm praying. Because <laughs> I think this can be overplayed and it becomes almost like white noise but I really felt that there are some people at Edgewater that are going through famines. Dry, difficult times. Probably like Isaac, a lot of things out of their control. A lot of things that they could not change. It's just that season of life. And I felt like the church needs to be the emergency room this morning. Those people that are going through those things, and I've been through them, and man, the church has helped me so much. The believers helped me so much. We need to be in the mercy room this morning. We need to gather around people that are going through famines. Because here's what can happen in a desert. I'll read it for you and then I'm done. It's Hosea. Listen to what God says about a desert time in Hosea chapter 2. Verse 14 says this, Behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, the desert, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre, Acre is trouble. Make the valley of trouble, this valley of trouble, I'm gonna make it a door of hope. The very thing that was your trouble is gonna become hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my master. Isn't that fantastic? I'm going to bring you into the desert because in the desert, I'm going to do some work for you. I'm going to give you a vineyard Vineyards always speak of celebration, of wine, of joy. I'm going to give you a vineyard out there. I'm going to take the trouble that you've been in, and that very trouble is going to become the doorway to hope. And during that time, your perspective on me is going to be transformed. You used to see me as an ogre, as a master, as a, as a master slave. There in the desert, you're going to realize, no. It's a spouse partnership. That's that's what's gonna happen. That's brilliant. I think that's what God wants to do with some of us that are saying, it's been a famine. It's been hard. It's been difficult. I don't know when I'm gonna get through it. It's been troubling. It's a valley of acre. So here's what I want you to do. If that's you, and you know it, I just want you to slip your hand up. And then I want you to keep your hand raised. So the rest of us, keep your hands up. You got to keep them up. I want the rest of us to look around and see someone who has their hand up, okay? Do you have somebody? Everyone should have one person that has their hand up. Everybody has one person that has their hand up. I want you now get up and I want you to lay your hands on that person and I want you to pray out loud so they can hear you and you don't need to ask them what they need to be prayed for. You already know it. You've been through famines, You found your Rehoboth. You pray the same thing to that person, okay? Pray out loud. Go right now. And in two minutes, I'll pray, okay? Heavenly Father, may we never forget that you came for the broken, for the sick, for the lost. And may we as believers, may we have that same steadfast dedication to the lost and the sick and the hopeless and the troubled. And I pray for those that have raised their hand this morning who like Isaac are in a famine I pray, Lord, that they would have locations, markers in their life that they can return to. That they would not go to Egypt, but they would find community groups and church is the emergency room for them. I pray, Lord, that the same plan you had for Gomer and Hosea, would be the plan you have for each of us in our deserts, in our wilderness, that we would receive vineyards, joy. That the very thing that's causing us trouble would become our hope. That our perspective of you would be transformed into one where we know that you are our partner, our spouse that gave everything for us that we'd stop seeing you as an ogre and master, but a lover and savior. I pray that your spirit would be given without measure to them. The cares of this world would be hacked down and sun and water would be given to them, that there'd be like a tree planted by the streams of water. And whatever they do, would prosper. So work as only you can. I pray for those in here that need to be baptized this day, showing outwardly their inward transformation. Then draw them, I pray. I ask that we would go from here being a community of believers that walks well, both on the hills and the valleys, both in the famines and the feasting, demonstrating to our community and grants pass the greatness of the God that we serve. He is the God of the hill and the God of the valley. So go with us, I pray. And I ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.